Recovery Elevator episode 425. Who can I help? Who needs help right now? And it doesn't even have to be an, an alcoholic. It could be anybody because just the act of getting up, going to help somebody, getting out of yourself is usually enough to make that go away. Uh, like this? Yeah, that should work. Mix down. <laughs> yeah, keep going. Yo, yo. Mix down. Three, four. Yo, yo. Wiki, wiki. Three, Mix four, down. There we go. Seven, eight. Wiki, wiki. Mix down. Guys in the house. <laughs> I love it. Wiki, wiki. Mix down. There we Welcome go. to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill, and I am so excited to be here with you today. Listeners, on today's episode, we have Doug. He's 59 years old from Buena Vista, Colorado, and took his last drink on July 28th, 1982. Yes, I said that right, 1982. That's also the year I was born, and coincidentally, today is my birthday. If you want to know what 40 years without alcohol is like, Doug will tell you, and you're going to love the interview. I want to say thank you to all of our Cafe Ari chat hosts. You guys do an amazing job. And speaking of Cafe Ari chats, I want to give a shout out to Dale, who oversees the chat schedules. He makes sure that the chats have hosts. He trains the hosts, he updates the chat spreadsheets, and he seems to sprinkle magical sobriety fairy dust on everything he touches. Dale, big thank you, my man. You've been a big part of my sobriety, and you're a big reason Cafe Ari is such a wonderful and supportive community. Listeners, Join Recovery Elevator in Atlanta, Georgia over Memorial Day weekend on Sunday, May 28th at 6 p.m. for a fun conference-style event at the Marriott and Alpharetta. This event is all about getting your connect on, and it's going to be a fun time. You can even stick around after the event for some silent disco. Spouses or loved ones are encouraged to attend. Registration is now open. Link is in the show notes for more information. Thank you, Robin. Or you can go to recoveryelevator.com forward slash Atlanta. I want to give a shout out to K-Mac who just hit one year alcohol free. K-Mac, I love you and congratulations. I am so proud of you. Okay, let's get started. In our dry January course, I teach a class covering the different recovery modalities and what recovery pathway is right for you. So here's the good news. In 2023, there have never been more ways to ditch the booze. 10, 15, 20 years ago, recovery took place in church basements with bad coffee and shitty donuts. But today, the landscape is much different. Now, side note, last night, I went to an AA meeting in a church basement with bad coffee. I'm not dogging that way of recovery at all. I love my Tuesday night AA meeting, but there are so many more methods, programs, or techniques, you name it, that are available today, and we're going to cover them. So here we go. Now, a couple caveats before we begin. Caveat number one, if you're ready, now ready in my notes is in all caps and bold, if you're ready, any program is going to work for you. If you're truly sick and tired of being sick and tired, then any of these recommendations will stick. In addition, you have to give them a solid try. I internally, LOL, as the kids say, when I hear people say that AA, smart, or recovery dharma isn't right for them, and they have yet to attend any of those meetings. In fact, we just caught a good glimpse of alcoholic thinking. What do they call it in AA? Contempt prior to investigation. Caveat number two, 
there is no right or wrong way to quit drinking. This is where AA sometimes steams my clams. Some of the most intense criticism we've received at RE has come from AA members saying, how could you? AA is the only way to sobriety. However, most members recognize getting sober is hard and that there are other ways that do work for other people. In a couple moments, I'll give my recommendations, but really it's up to you to figure out best what works for you. Now, when building your recovery portfolio, you want to keep this in mind. I recommend 50% external and 50% internal work. Now, at first, the internal work may be too big of an ask. I get that. But as your nervous system settles down, you want to aim for a balanced split. Now, here's some quick examples of what I mean when I say external and internal. Here's external work. Driving to an AA meeting or hopping on a cafe or a Zoom chat. This would be phoning a friend or working with a sponsor or an accountability partner. This is internal work, meditation, journaling, reading Quitlet, stuff like that. All right. So when building out your recovery, I recommend this five-tiered approach while keeping in mind the external and internal component of it. Now, this is all in the show notes as well if you want to see them written out there. Thank you, Robin. So here are the five tiers I recommend you hit when building your recovery portfolio. Number one, community. Number two, action slash movement. Number three, inner peace. Number four, knowledge. Number five, the universe. All right, let's unpack these. The first tier, community. Let's talk programs that are community focused. This would be AA, Smart Recovery, Dharma Recovery, Life Ring, Women for Recovery, Cafe RE, The Lucky Club, Meetup.com, Online Sober Communities, The Sober Thread on Reddit, TalkingSober.com, or Our Sober Ukulele, Our Dry January, or Our Sober Photo Courses here in RE. This would be phoning a friend. This would be one-on-one interaction with another person in recovery. Meeting with a counselor or a therapist also falls under this community approach. So I feel all of these tiers are important, but this community one is a biggie. In order for you to get the most out of this, you need to burn the ships. You need to be honest with yourself first and then with the community. And here's an equation that almost always pencils out in the recovery world. Burning the ships, radical honesty equals accountability, which then inevitably equals community. All right. Here's the second tier, action or movement. This would be yoga, dance, music, weightlifting, ecstatic dance, hiking, stretching, running, swimming, drumming on your desk. Your body is meant to move. Chemicals of well-being, such as endorphins, dopamine, and serotonin, are released when we move. Now, three times a week for a duration of 20 minutes is a good place to start. Let's unpack the third tier, inner peace slash creation. This would be meditation, breath work, sunrises, sunsets, time spent in nature, time spent with animals, float tank therapy, relaxing, chanting, journaling, inner child work, singing, playing music, painting, writing poetry. Now, this tier is where you create your new life that no longer requires alcohol. One reason why pen to paper is so effective is you can't write as fast as the mind can think. So writing slows down the thinking mind. All right, a little bit about animals. 
their nervous systems are much more intact or less frenzied than their human counterparts. Animals live life from their hearts, opposed to humans who mostly live in thought. A recent study shows that similar amounts of oxytocin are released when we hug a dog, almost equal to the amount when we hug a human. On the flip side of that, oxytocin, or the love molecule, is released in dogs when we pet them. We can be of service to the dogs. So if you're feeling fraught, visit a petting zoo or kick it with a pet or your friend's dog. Human nervous systems can attune themselves to more stable nervous systems, even those of animals. The fourth tier is knowledge. This is learning. This is empowering yourself with information. This would be podcasts, quit lit books, audiobooks, learn about healthy diets, learn about how the mind works. And no, you cannot read yourself or listen yourself out of an addiction, but this is an important tier. Under this umbrella includes medicines from both the East and West. Perhaps naltrexone or the Sinclair method is something you may want to try. Naltrexone is a medication that blocks the euphoria response when we drink alcohol. Perhaps more shamanic approaches with medicines such as ayahuasca, psilocybin, San Pedro, or ibogaine may be right for you. Here's the fifth tier, the universe. Let me be clear, this is not religion, but it is the spirituality component of recovery. One of the beautiful purposes of an addiction is it can flex the layers of the ego so much that they eventually snap. Letting in, I don't know, some may call it God. When you say lines to yourself like, I cannot live like this anymore, don't worry. The universe is right there with you saying, not a problem, let me show you the way. Now listeners, go slow with this tier. Go slow with the universe. This was the last of the five tiers to implement itself in my sobriety journey. This one, most likely, is on the universe's clock and not yours. But be open. Pay attention to the breadcrumbs of life and don't be afraid to ask for assistance or guidance from the universe at any time. In fact, there's a well-remixed line that's been floating around for a couple thousand years, which is, ask and you shall receive. To recap, listeners, this would be a 50% internal and 50% external split and try to hit a couple things from each of the five tiers and you're going to be just fine. Remember, your recovery is always changing because you are. It should change. What you're doing now for your recovery should look different than a month or a year ago. Listeners, go to the show notes and take screenshots of the five tiers I recommend. Again, I want to say thank you, Robin, for doing the show notes. And now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp, before we hear from Doug. In a perfect world, we all want to feel our best at all times. However, through life and recovery, I've had to learn to accept the wobbles that come with this journey. You've all heard me talk about my dip days. For me, managing these has come hand in hand with using tools that I have learned through therapy. I love knowing that I have agency and that even when I'm not feeling great, I can feel empowered to take positive action. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option. BetterHelp is convenient and flexible. Also, it's entirely online. You can fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. If you want to live a more empowered life, therapy can get you there. Visit BetterHelp.com Elevator today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot Elevator. 
Doug, how are you? I'm doing great. Glad to be here. Yeah, fantastic. Glad to be here as well with you, Doug. I'm excited to share your story with alcohol with the listeners. Let's get right into this, Doug. When was your last drink? Well, through the grace of God and uh, the help of a lot of good friends, I had my last drink on July 28th of 1982. July 28th of 1982. Doug said he was 19 years old in, in 1982. And listeners, uh, I think four or five months ago, I did a drive for interviewees in early sobriety. And on this podcast, we set out, Chris and I, to have all different types of interviewee on the podcast with different sobriety times. But you may have noticed that you know our sweet spot or our target interviewee in sobriety time is probably one to three months away from alcohol with occasional couple of years in there. But when I got an email from Doug that said 1982, two things, I was born in 1982, great vintage, right? <laughs> great year. And I said, dang it, let's get somebody on here that has spent 40 years away from alcohol or has that amount of time logged. I know my pen is ready. I know my ear is perked and I'm excited to share with our audience, you know, what a life without alcohol can look like the pros, the cons, the ups, the downs, all that stuff. Because I know that's a question that many of us get caught up in when we quit drinking is like, do I have to do this for the rest of my life? I can tell you right now, it's not healthy to think about the rest of your life when uh, you may be on day one or two or day zero. But here we are with Doug. I am stoked to share his experience with you guys, how he did it for 40 years. And 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 before I hit record, I was like, how many years is that? Oh, wait a second. I'm 40. I was born in 82. <laughs> That's an easy, clean number. Uh, let's do this. But before we get to your journey away from alcohol, that story, Doug, give listeners a little background about yourself, where you're from, what you do for a living, your age, do you have a family? And most importantly, what do you like to do for fun? Okay. Um, pretty much grew up around the Colorado area. I currently live in uh, Buena Vista, which is about 90 minutes west of Colorado Springs up in the mountains, mostly uh, Denver area growing up. I uh, was born in Denver, actually. Been married since August of 1985. My wife and I have raised two wonderful boys. Very proud of them. Uh, they One of them still lives here in the area. Uh, another one is uh, living down in Arizona at the moment. Um, he's worked with me in the past. I've done a variety of different things in my lifetime. I started out doing upholstery, uh, which was a trade that uh, I learned to do in high school, uh, and then moved into uh, uh, kitchen cabinet uh, sales, design, installations, things like that. Uh, I've done that for most of my life. And then uh, for a few years up here, I built uh, some houses with my son, uh, some small spec houses. And for fun, uh, I'm an avid mountain biker. Love to do that for a long time. I don't ski so much anymore, uh, but I did that for most of my life. like to ride my motorcycle and just enjoy being in, in the Colorado mountains. Yeah, um, listeners, Doug and I talked a little bit about Buena Vista, and it is an absolute gem in the Colorado Rockies. And I don't even want to say this because, you know, but the secret's already out. And I told him <laughs> that I used to play middle school football for the Minturn Patriots, which is right outside of Vail. And we played Buena Vista. And in Spanish, that means good view. And not a lot of people know or they don't, they don't remember that that whole area. In fact, that area north of Canada was part of Mexico and Salida, which is what, 30 minutes south of you? Uh, yeah, not even that. It's about 25. Salida means exit in Spanish. And that used to be the border 
uh, Mexico and America in a long time. So the 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 Spanish influence, the Mexican language influence on that part of the country is is really cool, and just how and and, and the scenery is incredible. Um, Doug, you you said you you were married since 1985. I'm going to ask you for some advice on sobriety, but I have been married uh-huh. since 2022. Do you okay. have any marriage advice for me? Well, a lot of it goes hand in hand. Um, first of all, there's no long-term marriage without being sober for me, mm-hmm. at least. That's just, it wouldn't have happened. You know, there's, there's a whole litany of things that in my life that I'm grateful for, but none of it would have been possible without being sober first. So, you know, the, the, the key to it, I think is, is just to, uh, continue to be willing to, to humble yourself and, and learn and realize at any given moment that you might be wrong, <laughs> you know, and for marriage, at least it's, it's not a 50, 50 deal. I mean, if each person's given 50%, it's destined to fail. You know, it's, it's 100, 100, you know, I have to give it my all. And uh, I think that's the most important thing. Yeah. I like that. And, and, and you said none of it is possible without sobriety. Imagine sobriety, is at the top of your list of what's important to you. Am I correct? It has to be at all times. It's, it's just understanding that, you know, everything starts with being sober because I proved to myself that, you know, I, I would just lay waste to everything in my life if, uh, if I was drinking. Well, Doug, let's get into your story with alcohol. Why don't you take us from the beginning? Maybe when you started drinking, when you recognized it was an issue, um, did you try to quit drinking at 19 for the first time? Uh, take it away. Yeah, I'll try and go through it fairly quick so I can save time at the end. But uh, probably one of the more unusual factors in my life, I was I was given up for adoption at uh, 10 days old. And uh, it, it became very relevant later on. I'll talk more about that in a while, how that became important to understand. So so the family that I grew up with was was not my my uh, blood family. Um, I grew up in a pretty average, normal, suburban, middle class home. Uh, we lived in a few different places around Colorado with two errant years in Southern California uh, when I was in middle school. But uh, it was pretty normal upbringing. Um, I didn't know anything about heavy drinking. I didn't grow up around, you know, alcoholism or abuse or any of that stuff. It was it was just it was pretty vanilla, you know. Um, so I, I think I'm a real great case study for the genetics of alcoholism because I didn't have an environment that might produce an alcoholic drinker just from what I saw and grew up with. My first experience with alcohol, amazingly enough, or the first thing I kind of remember, I was four years old. And, uh, you know, three or four years or times a year, uh, my parents would have a cocktail with friends, usually around a holiday or something like that. And I remember at four, I was sitting on my mom's lap. Her favorite drink was a seven and seven, heavy on the seven up and light on the Seagrams. And uh, somehow I managed to get a few sips of that away from her. And I remember like it was yesterday, I began to feel this warm glow and I really liked it. (laughs) And, uh, so, you know, that was at four and it was just, it was a memory that came to me at one time. And it was like, you know, I think I was hardwired to react to alcohol differently uh, from the beginning. You know, I believe I was an alcoholic from day one. Um, so fast forward to when I was 12, I, uh, my first real experience with alcohol was uh, a buddy of mine in junior high had stolen a bottle of Jack Daniels from his father's liquor cabinet. And um, after school, we were all going to go somewhere else and partake of it. And uh, I kind of have to pause for a second and talk about the one feeling that I grew up with in my entire life. And that was that I just 
felt different somehow. I always felt like I was not a part of the crowd. Um, I could definitely relate in Rudolph where there was the Island of Misfit toys. I just felt like that was me. And somehow I didn't look right. I didn't feel right. I was, you know, the, the saying goes, I wasn't comfortable in my own skin. Uh, and I, I couldn't really figure that out at that age. I didn't really understand. I just knew that most of the other kids I, felt, I thought were cool and I wasn't, you know. Fast forward to this day where we're at my friend's house drinking a bottle of Jack Daniels. Uh, most of my friends mixed the Jack with, you know, whatever root beer, or Coca-Cola or whatever. I drank half the bottle straight uh, at 12. And as I began to feel the whiskey rise to my head, there was an audible click that I heard in my head. And it was like a light came on. And all of a sudden, I was normal, whatever that meant. I was even with everybody else. I was a part of the crowd. When I told a joke, they were laughing at the joke and not at me for messing it up. And I thought, wow, I want to be like this forever. <laughs> you know, the rest of my teenage years, you know, my drinking career was fairly short, obviously, because I sobered up at 19. And I tell people I didn't drink for a long time, but I drank for a good time, you know. And uh, so 12, 13, 14, I would experiment with alcohol or, or drugs a little bit now and again, just whenever I could find it. But uh, it wasn't really till I was 16. I had a car. And, uh, you know, what? one thing that happened when I was in uh, Southern California, when my family was living there, my uh, adopted mom passed away from breast cancer at an early age. So you know, we moved back to Colorado because we had no family in California or anything like that. And, uh, you know, just the way I could deal with the grief of, of my mom passing away was was to drink and, and to use drugs. So the drug use escalated, the drinking escalated very quickly at that point. I think from somewhere late in my sophomore year until I sobered up at 19, you could probably count on, on two hands the amount of days that I was actually truly sober or clean just because, it, it, because of my alcoholic tendencies, my uh, addictive tendencies, it, I produced and or I went into uh, compulsive drinking very quickly, compulsive drug use very quickly. It was, uh, I, I just, it took off very fast. So, you know, growing up as a little kid, I spent a lot of time with uh, a couple people. My dad was uh, very influential on me. And then I had a grandfather who was a, just a salt of the earth kind of a guy. He was a, a farmer in Southern uh, Nebraska. And I spent summers out there a lot with him. And he became kind of my mentor a lot. He was just, he was a little bit older and uh, just a, a wonderful man all around. He was kind, he was compassionate, and he became the model for me of the kind of person that I always wanted to be. He was helpful around the town. He's just, you know, kind of a pillar of the community in this little town that he lived in. And as I was getting closer to the end of my drinking, the thing that I hated most about it was I realized that I was moving very quickly away from becoming the kind of person that I desperately wanted to be in my grandfather, that, you know, my, my behavior and, and the way I looked at the world, I was just, it was, it was moving in the opposite direction. Um, from that, I was becoming mean, I was becoming uh, angry. Uh, you know, my behavior was erratic and, and hurtful at times. That was probably the thing that drove me at the end was, was how much damage I was doing to other people. You know, you know these moments of clarity that God was giving me towards the end was uh, just the amount of, of hurt that I was inflicting on other people. I, I didn't really want to do that. 
but I was, um, I was starting to hang around with some legitimately dangerous people, uh, that were doing very dangerous things and, uh, harmful things. And that was not the kind of person I was, you know, meant to be growing up. How I got to, uh, sobriety was, um, you know, somewhere around the time when I was 16, 17, you know, I was, I was really struggling. I was having a, a hard time. I was drinking a lot. I was starting to use a lot of drugs and uh, just didn't know what to do with all the emotions and feelings that I was having. Uh, made a very, very lame, half-hearted attempt at suicide. And uh, through a long chain of coincidences, uh, I had a couple friends that were members of the Alateen program. And they invited me to come to a, an Alateen meeting to talk about my feelings that I was having and, and the struggles that I was having. And I thought, well, that means it's a program for teenage alcoholics, you know, and I'm like, ah, no, I'm not an alcoholic, you know. So they explained to me what it was. And, you know, for those who don't know, Alateen is an offshoot of Al-Anon. It's for family members of alcoholics and it's for uh, particularly teenagers who've had an alcoholic in their lives that has impacted their life in a negative way. You know, I didn't have any alcoholism in my family growing up, so I didn't really belong there. But my friends were like, you know, you need to come. It's a place you can talk, you know, you can be assured that, you know, you won't hear around school the next day what you were talking about at the meeting the night before. And that was very true. It was a great place for me to be and hang out. And, you know, they talked about the 12 steps. There was there was the element of spirituality there that, uh, you know, I, I'd grown up in the church, but I'd kind of rejected that uh, because uh, I felt like it was just you know, very rigid, you know, God to me was a, uh, a old man on a hill with lightning bolts, you know, that was going to take me out sooner or later. I lived by the motto for a while that I'm going to hell anyway, so I might as well enjoy the ride, you know, and uh, that's how I lived for a while. But the other thing that was happening in this Alatine meeting was once a month, there would be AA speakers that would show up and tell their story. And first I kind of laughed about it. You know, these guys, old guys had come in, they'd talk about how they drank and all this. And then as the, you know, this was a couple of years that this went on and every time a speaker would come in, something would be said. And I'm like, hmm, that sounds kind of familiar, you know, and, uh, you know, every once in a while, one of them would come in and he'd really ring my bells because I'm understanding way too much of what he's talking about. So I really began to question, you know, what was going on in me. You know, I, I, I didn't want to be drinking and, and using so much. It was kind of interfering with some of the things that I like to do, some of the sports that I like to do. But, you know, it was just this process. I think it was providential that I was there and I was hearing these stories of these alcoholics because I, I actually began to question whether or not I might be an alcoholic. And, of course, I would reject that out of hand right away because I didn't want to face that that question. But it just got to be more and more and more. And then after I graduated high school, I moved into a, an apartment with a guy that I, I knew in high school. And, and it just, you know, it, the drinking and the drug use accelerated even more. Uh, but in that, I was beginning to make some attempts to try and moderate. Maybe I'd try and quit for some time. What I found was I could never fully quit. I was, I, you know, I was attempting to use the 12 steps in some fashion that I had learned through Alatine. And uh, it just wasn't working. I found that if I could stop drinking, the drug use would escalate or vice versa. But I, you know, I, I put together in, in a period of several months of, of this desperate attempt to try and moderate somehow. Um, I put together maybe two or three days where I was actually clean and sober the entire time. And one was because my body had just had so much abuse over the last three or four years that I just, I, I just literally couldn't do it one day. But, you know, got a day's worth of rest and I was ready to go back at it. My drinking was never any sort of 
moderate drinking or maintenance drinking. I never did anything like that. You know, my whole, my whole goal was, was to drink as much as I could, as quick as I could, or use as much as I could. Um, I was, what I was really trying to do was, was to pass out at the end of the night in bed, because what I had figured out was if I went to bed and I was still awake or conscious, um, I would start to think about things. And then my brain would start to spin. And, you know, I've heard the term blender brain, and that's, exactly what happened to me and it would just progress worse and worse and worse until i'd have to get up and do something about it i'd have to drink more or whatever until i could actually just pass out um you know so that process just went on and on doug this is fantastic stuff and it sounds like we're close to the jumping off point and, and yep. before before we get there i want to unpack a couple things there's some similarities i've heard on this podcast over and over and over and with my same experience and, and that's that first drink and you remember yep. it at age four, at age yep. four, there was a sensation. You felt like you're hardwired. That is a commonality. We all, we all, uh, yeah, light up internally. Um, yep. I remember in middle school, my, my first night, we, we finished the whole vodka bottle. I passed out. My arm was on uh, a very hot pipe and it, it, it burned. <laughs> there was a mark on my arm. And I remember touching my arm to this pipe and then removing it. And I was burning my arm and there was no pain. I'm like, oh my God, alcohol is the coolest thing ever. And I had all those <laughs> yep. sensations that you felt. And then another commonality is that I've heard on this podcast, my own experiences, you know, you felt different. You didn't feel like mm -hmm. you belonged or something was wrong, but feeling different. And there was this, you said the phrase that you were moving away from the person that I wanted to be. I know you had a grandfather figure and sometimes that's it. You also said there's a moment of clarity with that. And sometimes people have that at age 50 or 60, they're moving away from the person, person they envisioned they to be. But can you unpack that for a second that you had a moment of clarity or whatnot, and you recognize you're moving away from the person that you wanted to be? Um, there was a couple incidents where I, I literally, you know, I hurt some people pretty badly and I just, I kind of snapped out of it. And, and I thought, what, what am I doing? You know, I, I think because I grew up in a home where there wasn't drinking and, and, you know, it was trying to be decent to people was kind of the motto there, you know, um, you know, I, I realized very early in life that I was way out of sync with all of that. Um, you know, and I just think it was providential that, you know, God opened up my eyes and I saw what a monster I was becoming, uh, and what I was actually capable of with, uh, with, you know, some of my tendencies, you know, I was, I was, pretty big and strong at the time. And, and I really did hurt a couple people and, and also verbally, you know, said things to people that was very harmful and, and hurtful. And I, I just, I was like, wait a minute, that's, that's not who I want to be. I, I don't want to be that person. So it just, you know, there's a few times where, where my eyes just opened up. I, I, you know, I consider it, you know, God was just kind of showing me where I was headed. Yeah. Okay, Doug. So, so pick up where you left off. Uh, sobriety is right around the corner here for you. Yeah. So, you know, still, even after uh, high school, I was continuing to attend these uh, Al Alateen meetings uh, just because it was my one moment of sanity during my week, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, um, so in the preceding months, there was a guy that I had met. We, we partied together quite a bit and uh, we, we really got along well and he kind of disappeared. And this was the guy whose dad uh, was in AA and sobered up when he was about two or three years old. Um, and so as he was going down the same path, um, he eventually um, asked his dad to help him get sober. Um, so his dad took him to a few meetings and, and you know, he began to, to flourish in the AA program. 
And, uh, you know, this one meeting of Alatine a few months later, he showed up and he was talking about how much better he felt, how, you know, he really enjoyed being sober. You just, you could see it in his eyes. You could see it in his face. Something had changed in this guy and he was at peace. He was the kind of guy that was always a very nervous person, uh, kind of skittish, you know, um, and he wasn't like that. He was, he was calm. He was just sitting there. He looked peaceful and rested. And, and I noticed that. So after this Alateen meeting, I went up to him, talked to him for a while. Hey, it's good to see you, you know? And uh, I said, yeah, I think maybe I ought to maybe go check out one of those AA meetings sometime with you or something. And it's like, great. How about uh, next Tuesday? And I'm like, ah, uh, well, I didn't mean quite that quick, you know? So for the next few weeks, he was very politely persistent about calling me, seeing how I was doing, checking up, asking me if I was interested in going to uh, a meeting with him. And then my final drink was July 28th. And I remember I went with another friend of mine. We bought each a 12-pack of beer. And by this time, I had already accepted an invitation to go to a meeting the next night with my friend. And so I'm, I'm sitting here with this other guy and, and we had this, we each had a 12 pack of beer sitting in our lap and we're just sitting in this living room drinking and there wasn't much else going on, but drinking. And we'd talk a little bit and behind this friend of mine was a, a mirrored closet door in, in the living room. And I could see myself in the mirror drinking. And, and by this time I couldn't look at myself in the mirror. Like when I was shaving, I would have to look at my chin cause I couldn't stand what was looking back at me in the mirror. But I was kind of, as I'm drinking these beers, I'm, I'm looking at myself in the mirror, kind of glaring at myself and, and uh, sort of cursing myself for the disgusting person that I had become. And, and every time I would take a sip of beer, I'd ask myself, why am I doing this? And I'd say, well, it was really hot today. You know, it was a long day at work, whatever. So after two or three of these, I went to take a sip of beer. I asked myself why I was taking this sip of beer and I had no answer, but I did it anyway. And I realized it. I was drinking for no reason other than I had to. Hmm. And so I went to the meeting, first meeting the next night with this friend of mine with that knowledge in my head that I had been drinking for no reason other than I had to drink. And that's where I was at. That was, that was the bottom for me. Doug, when you had that realization that you were drinking because you had to drink or you needed to drink. My head was going up and down. I know there's several listeners out there right now going, yep. Cause that's, that's a rough, that's a rough realization to, to have because we often justify our drinking. Well, all my friends are drinking. It's societal. It's what we do. But when you strip away all the layers of that, I got to the same thing. Holy crap. I'm no longer drinking to feel good. I'm drinking to feel normal, which is an absolute yep. rough spot to be. It's also a good spot to be because sobriety probably isn't around the corner or a jumping off point isn't far. So you're 19 years old, you're going to AA or you're, you're at AA. You know, what was that? We, we got 40 years of sobriety to cover here, but you know, what was that first month like, or that first year being at 19? And, and I also have a tremendous amount of respect for people who, who quit drinking early, right in their teens, even early twenties. Cause there's another layer of challenges with that because everybody, it seems you're drinking is drinking in your friends. So yeah. What was, what was that first year like or that first six months? Well, it was, it was a whirlwind. 
you know, the, the first meeting, it was just, uh, I didn't know what to think, what to do. I wasn't sure, am I alcoholic? Because I still had the whole, you know, thing about, you know, this is a, a matter of willpower. This is a matter of, you know, it's, it's you know, a shameful thing to have, uh, whatever. And um, so that was my first meeting, sitting there at this meeting. The most important thing was after the meeting, I went to my friend's house, uh, to talk to him a little bit afterwards. I had a million questions. It's like, what this like, what's this about? You know? And the most question is, what do I do next? You know, I've been to this meeting. I'm pretty sure that I don't want to live the way I was living anymore. You know, and actually I really still kind of enjoyed drinking. I enjoyed the, the aspect of drinking. What I was really trying to figure out was how do I get away from the consequences of my drinking? Because if I could just figure out how to take a few drinks without acting like a moron or without hurting people or without getting in a car and driving drunk or whatever it was I was doing, I'd be great. But I pretty quickly realized that there was no separation between the two. You know, um, I've done a lot of volunteer work in prisons and stuff over the years. And the guys will say, you know, not every time that I drank, I got in trouble. But every time I got in trouble, I'd been drinking. And mm -hmm. that was me. That was exactly me. So, you know, the next few months was me going to a lot of meetings and trying to absorb as much as I could of the program and how do you live differently. My, my first couple meetings, I, you know, I'd go and I'd ask questions it's like, how do you stay sober? And I thought, well, maybe you stand on your head and say the Pledge of Allegiance four times a day in the corner or something like that. Or maybe there's a special uh, beet juice and, and turn up diet or something that I had to be on or something like that. You know, no, it's just, you know go to a lot of meetings, you, you start trying to learn this different way of life. Douglas, in your 40 years away from alcohol, I imagine more early sobriety, was there ever a voice that said, you know, I've, I've been sober for X amount of years, I got this? Or was there ever a very challenging moment where a craving was so intense? <clears throat> oh, I've had, I've had some, some uh, you know, urges at times, especially early on. I really have to say that it's been, it's been decades since I've had a strong urge to drink, you know, it, it, it really has, you know, the alcohol and the drugs, as far as fighting that battle of, you know, that daily battle of, of how do you avoid the urge to drink that that's not a part of my life anymore. And it hasn't been for a long, long time. It's, it's just not a battle anymore. So, you know, when in the early part of the years, when I, when I did have an urge to drink from time to time, um, you know, there's, there, I've learned ways to deal with that. You know, the first thing is, is to, you know, to pray. I mean, ask God to remove this, this urge to drink. And, and in big book, it talks about, you know, you, you, you can't just have a vacuum in your mind. You can ask God to remove the urge to drink, but you have to replace it with something. So what I ask him to do is to give me the thought of who can I help? Who needs help right now? And it doesn't even have to be an, an alcoholic. It could be anybody because just the act of Getting up, going to help somebody, getting out of yourself is usually enough to make that go away. Doug, I want to ask you about God, higher power. Mm -hmm. Did that arrive day one of, of sobriety, or is this something that over the years began to, to unfold? So, you know, like I said, I, I had grown up in church and kind of walked away from, from the church aspect of things. I always believed in God. I never stopped believing in God. I just didn't think that he believed in me. Because mm. my behavior and my reaction to alcohol and what I did was, I thought, so repulsive to God that there's no way that he could ever accept me or love me. And so I thought I was 
doomed, you know? Um, so, so I've always had a relationship with God in, in some fashion. It was just that it, it changed drastically when I started sobering up because I, you know, he never abandoned me. And I realized that, and, you know, he'd given me this gift of sobriety when I finally, you know, came to AA and, and, you know, to be honest, I, I pleaded with God for a couple years, keep me sober, keep me from doing this stuff. And, and it just, it wouldn't work. So I didn't think that he was listening, but what I came to realize later on was I was asking God, please help me. But I was also giving him the terms that he needed to help me under Mm. instead of me saying, I'm willing to go to whatever lengths it takes to stay sober. I wanted to do it on my terms. I wanted his help, but I wanted to do it on my terms. Doug, it sounds like there was some inner shame that needed to be reconciled as in God couldn't love you. Why could you? Um, right. I've, yet, I've yet to meet somebody who's been successful in sobriety in the long term who has uh, who has not addressed the self-loathing or that inner shame. How did you learn to love yourself? Well, it, you know, and I, I'm, I'll be honest, it's 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 not a battle that's that's ever over in, in my uh, experience because it, it comes back. I make mistakes. You know, sometimes I'm fairly quick to beat on myself about it for a while. But um, I mean, you know, God's kept me sober for 40 years. God has given me an awesome family. You know, I've been able to to experience all the, the joy that goes with that. I've I get to live in a wonderful, wonderful place. Um, you know, we've never missed a meal. Uh, you know, we've uh, I wouldn't say that I'm, you know, wealthy, but, you know, our, our business has kept the bills paid for a long time. I think more than anything, it's just, you know, you have to turn around and, and figure out a way to, to count your blessings, like my grandma used to say, you know, or find what you're grateful for. That's, that's really the, the, the weapon that you have to use to combat the self-loathing is to find something, anything that you can be grateful for, even if it's just the fact that I didn't take a drink today. Yeah, I love that, Doug. And you and me have both heard stories. Uh, AA has been a big part of my journey, especially in those rooms. But you hear them outside of the rooms too, oh, who have if people have been sober for a year, two, three, four, five, 10, 15, or maybe 20 years, and then they go back out and drink. Like, what do you yeah. think that is? And what advice do you have for people that are maybe thinking about going out and drink again? Well, I think for, for those who I have known, and I have known a, a couple people that had lengthy sobriety and relapsed and they they just held on in the back of their mind somehow that there was some situation that they might be able to safely drink again you know the big book talks about we have to fully concede to our innermost self that we're a real alcoholic and there was some little sliver of something they were hanging on to at some point that they thought there might be some situation where they might be able to take a drink again somehow even and you know they say alcohol is cunning baffling and powerful but it's also patient Hmm. and it'll wait and it'll wait as long as it needs to and i've seen that you know the 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 first key to me of long-term sobriety is you fully concede to your innermost self that you're a real alcoholic you know and you have to figure out what that means uh for me I battled with what does that mean to be an alcoholic for a long time because I had the whole, you know, thing about the willpower and about the, you know, the personality defects and all that stuff. It, it's an allergy, you know, it's, it's a food allergy in a sense, because if people are allergic to strawberries, they learn not to eat strawberries and they won't break out. You know, I'm allergic to alcohol and I'm allergic to drugs. I break out in irresponsible behavior, 
unsocial behavior, antisocial behavior, things like that. So the problem was I couldn't figure out how to not just not take a drink. You know, you don't hear people that are allergic to strawberries trying to figure out how maybe they can just eat strawberries on the weekend and they'll be okay. Or maybe if they don't eat strawberries at work, you know, or something, it just doesn't happen. If you're allergic to strawberries, you don't eat strawberries and you're fine. But alcoholism has this mental component to it where you're compulsive about drinking and the obsession of somehow, some way, somewhere it's going to be different next time. You know, what I, what I heard early on was once you're a pickle, you're never going to cucumber, you know? And I learned that I am an alcoholic. And what that means is my body is hardwired to react differently to alcohol. You know, I had to get rid of the whole thing about, you know, it's a moral defect or something like that. Cause it's, it's not, it's, you know, when I take a drink, my body's going to react differently. You know, I've been sober 40 years. And if I take a drink tomorrow, it's going to react exactly the same. And I also believe that alcoholism is, is progressive. So if I took a drink tomorrow, I wouldn't go back to where I left off at 19. I go back to if I was drinking the last 40 years, that's where I would go to just how that works. Doug, how has recovery or the process of quitting drinking, getting sober, how has that process changed since 1982 in the last 40 years for you? You mentioned before I hit record that, you know, while working, you sometimes listen to podcasts and you heard a recovery podcast. That was not an option in 1982, 1992, or even 2002. So how have you seen the landscape of of recovery changing and maybe even comment on the stigma? You know, the stigma is pretty much the same. (laughs) You know, people that are alcoholics and the things that they do, there's still, there's the the lack of understanding about alcoholism in, in the general community is still there. I mean, I believe roughly what 10% of the people are alcoholic, something like that. I think the percentages have never really changed much. The other 90% really don't understand what that means. It's like, well, you have so much to live for. You should be able to quit drinking. You have a wonderful family. You have a wonderful uh, spouse. You have, you know, a great business. You should be able to understand that you don't have to drink, but they don't understand that you just can't do that. That it's not like that. You know, you have this, mental obsession that you have no control over when you're in the midst of the disease. Doug, we are close to the rapid fire round here, but there's a couple more questions I want to ask you. What are some rules that you live by? I have to take care of my recovery first. You know, uh, I was told very early on that if I worry about staying sober, everything else will work itself out and do something every day to improve my spiritual life. You know, I could go on and on for probably eight or 10 podcasts about a lot of this stuff. But, you know, those are the kind of the two main ones. I have to, you know, God first, recovery and family are all kind of right there in, in, the, uh, in the second position. What's on your bucket list in sobriety? Oh, man. You know, I've been able to do so much. I think just continue to be sober until, until my last breath. I mean, that's, that's it. I, uh, I think with with being sober, anything else that I might want to do is possible. Um, you know, there's places I'd like to eventually visit or whatever if I can get there. You know, I've 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 had the agony and the ecstasy of life in 40 years. I've I've done a lot. I've seen a lot. A lot's happened to me. There's uh, there's nothing really glaring that I can think of that I just God, I really have to do that. Um, you know, I've I've jumped out of airplanes with all of my family. We all went out of an airplane together. 
you know, I've had some some success with amateur athletics over the years. Uh, I was able to win uh, uh, some competitions that meant a lot to me. I've I've been able to see my kids grow up. Uh, you know, it's just there's so many things. Doug, uh, this is great stuff for me. I am walking in the footsteps of, of you, and I, as I mentioned, I'm listening. And I know there was a lot of listeners when you said you know, the cravings, the desire to drink has almost been lifted. And that's a miracle of the program, a miracle of sobriety, miracle of, of a community of others who want to quit drinking. Um, and that I know a lot of people in the early trenches of it, you're like, God, I'm thinking about alcohol all day, every day, be patient. That will slowly yeah. soften. Doug, we have reached the rapid fire round. Answer these questions within 10 to 30 seconds. That would be great. Are you ready? I think so. <laughs> Let's do it. Number one, what's the one thing you've learned about yourself since quitting drinking? I'm human. Love it. Number <laughs> two, it. what's your best sober moment? Oh my gosh. You know, there's 40 years worth of, of things. I think uh, my wedding day and the day my kids were born, those right in there at the top. What's your favorite alcohol-free drink? Coffee. <laughs> Coffee and, and water. Doug, what's the point of life? Um, to love God and do that by serving others. What is your favorite 80s or 90s band? Well, you know, I'm I'm kind of an old guy, so you know, I picked a 70s band, which was Leonard Skinner. Ooh, uh, simple man. Yeah, but in the 80s is you too. Gotcha. What are some of your favorite sobriety resources? Um, you know, the obviously the big book, uh, my Bible. And then uh, going to meetings on a, still on a fairly regular basis, and uh, just the, all the resources that are out there. But the, the big book and, and my Bible are the two main ones. If you had a pet raccoon, Doug, what would you name it? Well, this is from my son, Trash Panda. Love it. Do you like pineapple on your pizza, Doug? I do. All right, that's what's up. And what parting piece of guidance do you have for listeners who are thinking about quitting drinking or are entering that process? Uh, there's no autopilot in sobriety. It's a it's a dynamic process. Uh, there, you, you're not going to find a point where everything's cool, everything's situated, and you're going to be able to just cruise. Um, life is dynamic. Things happen. Things change. It's a constant process of, of updating and changing. And Doug, can you give listeners your own customized, you might need to ditch the booze if line? <laughs> uh, if you wake up in the morning, you're still fully clothed, including your cowboy boots, have no idea how you got there, and there's a huge lump on the back of your head that you have no idea where it came from, probably need to quit. Yeah, that checks I've, out for sure. I found um, out later on that I'd fallen out of the back of a convertible. Oh, yikes. <laughs> yeah, probably a little concussed there as well. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Doug, thank you so much for your time, for sharing your story, your inspiration, your guidance. Thank you very much. Much appreciated. Oh, thank you. You know, I'd, uh, there's thousands and thousands of other things I'd love to share, but, you know, it's it's it truly is one day at a time for 40 years and continuing to stay on the on the road of happy destiny one day at a time for 40 years that's the key thank you yep. doug all right listeners after the interview with doug we stayed on the zoom call for a bit and chatted 
He told me of a burning bush moment he had. I think it was in his first year. Doug, I might have that wrong. I apologize. But he talks about around 2 a.m. He was feeling squirrely, ready to drink. And it was in Denver, Colorado, near a restaurant called Casa Bonita. If you're familiar with the area, you know exactly where that strip mall is. Now, attached to the strip mall was a detox center. In his program, he heard that being of service, talking to another alcoholic, could benefit himself. Now, Doug, feeling the intense throes or pangs of cravings, didn't know what to do, so he decided to walk down to the detox center. He walked into the facility around 2 a.m. and asked if he could speak with another alcoholic. The person at the desk said, look, they're, they're all asleep right now. Uh, noble intention, I understand, but right now it's not going to happen. At that very moment, the phone rang. The worker answered the phone, looked up at Doug, passed the phone over to Doug, and, well, we know where Doug's at today. What a cool story. That fifth tier, the universe, had Doug's back at that moment. Recovery Elevator, go big, because eventually we'll all go home. I love you guys. Get it.